so I'm hyperventilating a little bit. If I fall over, pick me up because I've got some things to say. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. That men are essential for procreation, but when it comes to pleasure, unnecessary. Dinosaurs eat men. Woman inherits the earth. Safety lights are for dudes. Safety lights are for dudes. <laughs> well, put some skates on. Be your own hero. Things in the air, Kristen. Yeah. Lord, please give it up for the dazzling vocal stylings of Miss Skimmerly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 68 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where it's been a long time since we've had an episode where we're all mad at everything all the time. I am Kristen Lopez here this week with Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. And Kimberly Pierce. Hello. Karen, once again, is just sickened by the world and has decided that she doesn't want to know that she's actually doing an event, not a, a cool, fun, Justin Theroux-based event, but like an actual church event. So hope she's having fun with snacks. They have snacks at church events, right? Seems like a place where there's food. I feel like they should. <laughs> so, so, so she's slutting it up at church for snacks. <laughs> slutting it up at church for snacks. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Karen's going to come back and be like, guys. Uh... <laughs> I feel like I'm going to hell now. I already told her. She's definitely going to hell, but we'll all be there as well. I've I've long made peace with it. I'll be driving the bus. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I was told I was going to hell when I was like, you know, in middle school, and and so I, I know that already. Same. <laughs> Child or an adult tell you that? Oh no, kids! Kids told me this. Okay. I, I knew some. Pretty- say, an adult told you that. There's problem. I knew some pretty fundamentalist kids and they had some very interesting ideas about what constituted going to hell and why you went to hell. So. I have things about that, actually. I feel like half my boys will be in hell, so... Yeah, pretty much everybody. It'll be okay. I'll, I'll be fine. We have a lot of topics, all of them bad, this week. It, for full effect, we started this podcast the week before Harvey Weinstein allegations broke out. And for about, what, a month? We were just angry. We've constantly been at, like, a code yellow state of alert ever since but it's been a long time in the history of this show since we had a topic and an agenda where every single point was just why are men so full disclosure guys this is all about disparaging you so if you just can't take it maybe go to a funner episode like um what's a what's a funner episode that we did where uh, we weren't mad at men. <laughs> well, if we're not mad at them, we're objectifying them almost every week. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. They must be used to it by this point. <laughs> Let's start with the first one. We're just going to go in order of horribleness. So, Liam Neeson. Liam had one job, which is to not be a garbage person. And he failed at that miserably. So... Liam Neeson's promoting his film, Cold Pursuit, that I have not seen, but I've heard it's garbage. And he told this story, seemingly unsolicited, about how he 
fantasized about murdering a black man in retribution for the rape of one of his friends, talking about that he would go down certain areas with a bludgeon that he would hope he'd be approached by somebody so that he could kill them. It sounds like one of his movies. It It sounds like the only movie he does right now. (laughs) But it's interesting that in most of the movies he does right now with those plot lines, the bad guys are white. I find that to be incredibly ironic and that also saying something. So of course he tells the story, no one stops him. And immediately people jump on to the obvious fact that it's racist. There was some back and forth. A lot of people were talking about context and clarifying. Uh, And Lauren, I know you said not to go with the headline. Yeah, well, I I think that the original independent um, interview slash article, I I think had some interesting things in it because the the writer actually did go in and talk with like a psychologist psychologist about why men behave like this essentially and so I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in here about about toxic masculinity and about that a certain type of man feels that his only outlet for frustration or anger or trauma and in some ways he's he's traumatized not in the way that the woman was traumatized uh, obviously but um in the way that like he feels angry for his friend he feels like he should be doing something which is in its own sense a part of toxic masculinity he goes out to find something to do and the only outlet that he has for that is violence and now he doesn't commit an act of violence he thinks about it and he wants to but he doesn't do it which you know, we shouldn't be clapping people on the back for being like, hey, you didn't kill someone today. Good for you. It is important to note that he does stop himself at a certain point and go like, this is bad. This is not a good thing that I'm doing right now. That shouldn't be applauded necessarily, but it should be noted. Well, he did also mention in the interview that he was ashamed that he felt that way, that he knew it was wrong. I know that the Daily Show's Trevor Noah was asked about this during a recent episode, and he said, that yes, he is exhibiting racism because he was specifically looking for a black man. But Trevor Noah was also saying that Liam Neeson's talking about that if you're not careful, racism and hatred that you have is encouraged or grown by the society that you live in. I think that's also very telling. Yes, he would never have said that if the person was white. But a lot of, I think, what his assumptions are fostered by a grander societal impetus. I know that a fellow writer, Yolanda Machado, who's been on this show, was showing quotes from an interview that she had done with Viola Davis, which Michelle Rodriguez, making everything worse, said Liam Neeson can't be racist because he was kissing Viola Davis like he was really into it. A, acting. B, I don't think Michelle Rodriguez watched the movie considering how that relationship ends, but neither here nor there. But Viola Davis was talking about the relationship between the Irish and African-Americans in America. There was this friendship and this camaraderie that they were both marginalized throughout history, but she said that did not stop Irish people from calling her the N-word and realizing that there was still that divide and that disconnect that's really important to bring up is that Liam Neeson probably doesn't think that he is racist. Well, he does, I think, understand that, yes, there is some latent racism to what he's saying. Because again, he did mention feeling ashamed that he knew it was wrong. But at the same time, 
this history that we've had, especially between the Irish and, and black people in this country, is that, oh, yeah, we're all in the same group because we were both oppressed, we were both discriminated against. But even then, there's still that level of racism. So I think, yes, his comments are wrong, but they're more indicative of the societal and historical interplay between those groups than just one individual. And I think that's a bigger story. There's a tendency when this came out for people to jump on it. And I think to honestly to jump on the headline to say, okay, well, Liam Neeson is a racist and we've now canceled him. And it's like, well, but we have to have a conversation about this. One of the issues even just in general with canceling people, particularly for things like this, where you're actually talking about the complexity of violence and of race relations and of generational relations, because this was something that happened 40 years ago. So we're also talking about a time in the past when, and I believe it also happened in Ireland. This was not, you know, New York City or something like that. So there's a whole other section about the relationship between Irish people in Ireland and blackness and what that means. And that's a different story necessarily than the relationship between white Americans and black Americans. Like you're saying, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's going on right in this whole conversation that needs to be talked about. It doesn't need to be simply said, okay, he's done. We're not going to talk about him anymore. It's just like, no, we need to talk about him. We need to talk about all of these different things that are going on in what he's describing. And this is actually a good place to have that conversation rather than simply, you know, being like, oh, Liam Neeson is canceled and, and we don't, we're not even going to listen to him. That being said, the guy then turned around and was like, oh, I power walked my racism away or something like that. And I don't think that that was necessarily what he meant to say. I hope not. But it is, it's again, it's indicative of that sense that he obviously does not think that he's racist. And I think very few people that do have these, these racist attitudes think that they're racist. But it takes something like a violation of someone that you care about to bring out that anger, to bring out those completely subsumed and unconscious hatreds that are there and that are something you might not have ever acknowledged. And if you were ever asked, are you a racist? Like, no, of course I'm not a racist. Why would I be a racist? But then something like this happens like, oh no, I I want to kill someone and I want to kill someone of a particular color because of what happened to my friend. What he's saying is the stuff that we've been talking about since this podcast started. We know what, quote unquote, racism with a capital R looks like. It's dressing in blackface or dressing up as the KKK, which we're still seeing happen in this country and in other places. But we're still not really talking about that inherent racism, that ingrained, insidious stuff that if you've seen blind spotting is still existing, that centuries of ingrained divide between race and gender, stuff that just our brain is trained to notice and that we need to unlearn. And I think that that's what these comments from Liam Neeson prove. We're at the point now where he and us have to really confront and and we're still confronting that. I think that it's silly. And I say this, yes, as as a person who does look white, silly to say that that's all going to change in a generation or even two generations that idea of treating people is different just because of those ingrained things that we've been taught and Liam Neeson still got a lot of work to do I don't think he's properly apologized 
for the statements that he's made, but I think it forces a lot of us to look at ourselves and say, oh my God, have I had a Liam Neeson moment? Have I had this ingrained moment of racism that I didn't even know I was doing? What does that say about me? Like, that's what we really need to be looking at. And yes, we also need to confront what Lauren's saying, which is that idea that men need to defend women's virtue and they need to defend it with violence and they need to specifically defend it against black men. I was just watching horror noir on Shudder. That whole concept of the black man lusting after white women and the white guys having to save the day, that goes all the way back to something like Birth of a Nation. And those are images that we really need to look at as filmgoers. What we talk about when we say a movie is misogynist, the movie is racist, you need to be looking at everything and, and remind yourself what movies are teaching you. Yes, even Liam Neeson's movies. There is a reason that the villains in his movies are not black men. They are white men or they are unknown Eastern European men. They are white. And I think that's important to look at, too, in the context of these comments that he's made. I don't know what the answer to the, that is. I think that would require a bit more analysis and time on my part, but it forces us to look at the history of our country, the history of other countries and race, and the history of film and, and violence and race and how that all plays together. It's a far bigger thing than just Liam Neeson made these really stupid comments. I think it forces us to look even further at the proliferation of everything that makes those comments happen. Thinking about culturally ingrained racism, it's really frightening to think about. You can look at something like Birth of a Nation and go, oh my God, that's so far away, but it's really not. You, When you think about how close we still are generationally to what was going on. I think I had a great grandparent vote for George Wallace, a noted segregationist. Thinking about, you know, conversations I've heard from older people who I've been around talking about the Japanese during World War II. I choose to be an optimist and think with each passing generation, and especially what I'm seeing coming out of that younger group of millennials and those Generation Zs, we're getting so we're getting further and further away from it. But I, you know, I can think of right now a member of Congress 20 years ago who I know was a member of the KKK for a long time. With each passing year, we'll get better. But there's such a conversation that needs to be had about culturally ingrained racism, how culture plays into it, how time plays into it. And this is such a deep, convoluted, complicated conversation, but it needs to be had. I absolutely agree. And I think that that's one of the reasons why films like Black Klansman, which has been criticized for, uh, for, you know, talking to a white audience and for not really being for black people. But I think that that's important because that's something that, like you're saying, Kim, that us as white people have to deal with and have to talk about that this isn't in the far distant past, that birth of a nation is, you know, shown the, the fact that the film unites Birth of a Nation with the 1970s with today with and, and draws direct parallels to it and says, like, this is a progression. This is a relationship that still exists. It's not something that happened long, long ago and that we can simply forget about. This is still a part of living history and we have to talk about it and we have to address it specifically in the way that media represents it. 
that's that's the other thing that the Liam Neeson comments actually deal with is that this the latter half of his career has been built out of revenge movies and they are revenge movies that appeal to and they do appeal to that that fantasy of someone hurting someone you love or someone hurting you and turning around and getting to hurt them back and i think that most of us have those kinds of fantasies but they're also a part of issues of race is issues of xenophobia issues of ethnocentrism all of that stuff and all of that is something that we need to investigate and talk about Let's break this up with some humor. And by humor, I mean Bradley Cooper. Last <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no>. week. <laughs> Bradley Cooper's sad. He's feeling very sad. So it started with him talking about how he's, he felt embarrassed at not getting an Oscar nomination. He says... Quote, I was not surprised. I'm never surprised about not getting nominated. I'm telling this to Oprah, by the way, okay? And he says, quote, I felt embarrassed that I didn't do my part. But the truth is, even if I got the nomination, that should not give me any sense of whether I did my job or not. The trick is to make something you believe in and you work hard. Okay, so this led to a whole big thing from people saying that they were proud that Bradley Cooper admitted that he did want to get nominated. I feel that part is valid. Most actors, directors, whoever, they always say, oh, you know, I don't care about nominations. I don't worry about that. I do applaud Bradley Cooper for saying, yeah, damn it, I wanted to get nominated because that's a moment of honesty from a performer that I feel is very, very managed. So that is the one the one conceit I will give Bradley Cooper, but it opened this huge floodgate about how it is a shame that Bradley Cooper didn't get nominated. How dare the Academy not nominate this fine thespian who's made, let me see, one film for an Oscar. It culminated with Sean Penn going on to Deadline, which is the deadliniest thing ever, to write this diatribe about A Star is Born and how Bradley Cooper should have gotten nominated. I'm just going to throw out a couple choice quotes that he po posted that says, quote, it has been so long since we have been able to equate a success or a love story with high art or artists that we may well have forgotten. He says, quote, this isn't Bradley Cooper's opportunity. It's theirs to appreciate the depth and value of this film, A Star is Born, before its legacy outlasts their chance to participate in it. My mother, full disclosure, standing in the hallway right now with the biggest what-the-fuck look on her face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Sean, I don't know if you know this. Sean, I'm assuming you're listening to our podcast because you seem like the type of guy that really cares what a woman has to say about something. So, But a lot of people who deserved Oscars in their lifetime, who died, never got an Oscar, ever. Albert Finney died this week. You know what? Never nominated for an Oscar. And I feel he was a bit more deserving than the guy who directed the fifth version of a movie. How many Oscars did Hitchcock win, Lauren? None for Best Director. Just an honorary, right? He got the Lifetime <laughs> Achievement Award, and I think that he got Oscar for Rebecca, right? Or no, yeah, but he did not get an he did not receive an Oscar for it. 
David O. Selznick would be the asshole. Fucking Hitchcock. <laughs> Hitchcock. Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole, exactly. Uh, but I want to throw out a woman. Terry Grant. <laughs> okay, there's only been one woman winner. Winner. No black man has ever won. Ever. Spike Lee finally gets his first nomination for a 30-year career of paying his dues. But no, Brad needs that Oscar nom. First fucking time out. <laughs> we are giving Liam Neeson shit for comments he's made, but I think it's incredibly telling that Sean Penn, <laughs> a man who exemplifies so much white privilege in this industry, can look at Spike Lee's nominations for a 30-year career and and t- totally Kanye it and just be like, you know, Spike had a great career, but we all know Bradley Cooper did the best thing ever. And there's a lot, a lot of that out there that says how upsetting it is that Bradley Cooper didn't get the win. And you would never say that about a woman. You know, somebody said, uh, the Sean Penn article even says, the, co- the conceit is, quote, he's young, he'll have plenty of opportunities. How dare you, sir? Because there are numerous women directors that we pat them on the head and say, oh, don't worry, it's not your time. Prime example, and I'm not throwing this out because of thirst. It is actually a valid critique. Y'all didn't think Timothy Chalamet deserved an Oscar because, oh, don't worry, he's young. He'll have plenty of opportunities. Bradley Cooper's what? I don't know how old he is. He's not young, okay? But I think that whole concept of don't worry, he'll have more opportunities. You know what? Bradley Cooper will have more opportunities. You know why? Because he's a white guy in Hollywood. I just find this whole article to be so self-serving. Like, I don't know if Bradley's your friend. Maybe he is. Maybe that's why you're doing it, Sean Penn. Considering you tried to help the Me Too movement by writing a really in poor taste, what was it, poem? Stop. Just stop, Sean, please. Please. He's, he's never going to stop. I, mean, I know. Like, I know. He's Sean Penn. He never will. They keep on giving him platforms, too. I know Sean Penn's still sad that, like, he doesn't have an Oscar for Best Director. What is Sean Penn doing? I feel like he's just a professional shit disturber at this point. I don't even think he's making movies. That's not far off. I would agree with that. I wanted to say that Bradley Cooper is a dweeb. Yes, uh, that was the strong thought. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That was that was the strong thought that I wanted to express in some form at some point today. So I have now expressed it. No, it's it's fucking stupid. And and you know what? In some ways, obviously, the problem is not just Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper is fucking annoying. But the fact that there were so many people, particularly <laughs> white men, just saying, most of the people I saw who were expressing the oh poor Bradley Cooper were white men, that is just my anecdotal observation, that were expressing the sense of like, oh, poor Bradley Cooper, you know, and like, why is everybody ripping on him? Why is everybody making fun of him? And it does call back to the sense of like, even the way that he talked about that, it was was a disappointment. What did I do wrong that I did not get a nomination? Only men with an exceptional amount of privilege think that way. Because you know what, I guarantee you, Mario Heller, was probably disappointed that she did not get a Best Director nod. Ava DuVernay, back when Selma came out, I think that she was probably disappointed that she did not get a Best Director nod. I have a feeling, and and again, this is just my impression, I have a feeling that neither of them went off and were like, well, I expected this and I didn't receive it. They were like, no, yeah, I'm disappointed, but it's kind of something that you would expect. 
And it's because women and people of color and women of color know know that the odds are stacked against them in Hollywood. They know it. They have to be aware of it. Spike Lee knows that the odds are stacked against him winning and stacked against him getting nominated. And this is someone with an exceptional career, but he knows that. And it's because of the color of his skin, period. White men do not think that the odds are stacked against them. And they're right. So they turn around and when something like this happens, when they're like, oh, I didn't get the best director nod that I deserved or that I expected, they are surprised, they're shocked. One of the things that um, was brought up several times by several different people, several different men on Twitter, was that Steven Spielberg, back when Jaws came out, actually hired a video crew to film him watching the nominations and he was not nominated. This was being used as like a defense of Cooper being like, well, you know, of course you you make a movie like that and you expect to get nominated. It's just like, no, that's the height of white male hubris. Hiring a fucking video crew. I don't care who you are. I don't care that you're Steven Spielberg. Who would do that? Only someone who believes in themselves so intensely, who believes in the brilliance of their vision so intensely and cannot imagine a world in which they would not be honored. White men are the ones who experience this. White men are the ones who think, I should be nominated. I should be honored for this. And it doesn't matter what kind of movie you're making. I'm not saying that Jaws is a bad movie, but... That says a lot about the character of the person who is disappointed. It's all of a piece to me. Like, it's, it is exhausting. I can't believe that this is still the conversation. And I can't believe that so many people, again, particularly men, are incapable of recognizing the fact that this is symbolic of privilege. This is white male privilege. This is what we've been talking about. And some guys who are even obviously consider themselves woke and everything, it's like, no, 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 it's about merit. It's just like, no, it's not about merit. It's got nothing to do with merit. This has everything to do with what you think you deserve. I just have to chime in and say, what do men usually say when a woman gets snubbed? Maybe it wasn't, maybe the movie just wasn't good enough. Maybe exactly. the direction of a star is born wasn't good enough. I'm just going to mic drop on that. <laughs> well, that leads us to an interesting question we got from a listener from Nick Isaac at the Nick Isaac. He asks, what's the five year Oscar winner? The movie that'll still be culturally relevant and beloved in five years of the 2018 releases. I think we can all agree that it won't be a star is born. Correct. <laughs> or Green Book or Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> yes. Kim, what, what movie do you think that in five years people will finally consider it a culturally relevant, groundbreaking film? I'm hoping for the favorite. I mean, I see us still having a lot of the same gender squabbles in the next five years. But of the releases that I'm thinking of, that's the closest I can come. Lauren, what about you? Both Black Panther and Black Klansman because of the, the dialogue that they've gotten going. And probably Black Panther cl- is, is closer to that because it's this big budget superhero film that is within the Marvel Universe. And the Marvel films are going to be talked about, you know, for good or evil for, for years to come because of what they because of what Marvel has accomplished in terms of entertainment. But Black Panther is is really interesting. And even though I don't think it's a perfect film particularly, but it is very significant and it's it's significant in, in, in Afrofuturism. It is significant in um, changing the way that we think about superheroes and the way that we think about mainstream superheroes in particular. 
I'm going to kind of mimic off of Lauren and say the movie I hope that becomes culturally relevant, that people kick themselves every day that they didn't nominate for a goddamn thing, is Blindspotting. I hope people yeah. discover Blindspotting and realize the fact that we just completely ignored that movie and didn't give it anything should make us ashamed because that movie is so fantastic. It's so flawless. And I think it, just like Black Klansman and Black Panther to an extent, creates a triumvirate of really great dialogues in cinema about race and the history of oppression. You can chart the concept of racism through generations in all three of those movies in very different and fascinating ways. Did I just give myself an idea for something to write about? I think I just did. Um, I think Blind Spotting is a movie that hopefully more people will discover in the next five years and say, how did this not get a Best Picture nomination? But Bradley Cooper's The Star is Born did. Moving along to something that I wanted to talk about, I don't necessarily know how fervently everybody else did, but Woody Allen's back. He never really left, but he is making himself known by suing Amazon. So are you really upset that you don't get to see a rainy day in New York? Well, Woody Allen's really upset too, and he's going to tell somebody about it because he is suing Amazon for $68 million, alleging that they have backed out of a four-picture deal due to, quote, a 25-year-old baseless allegation. He's talking about how Amazon has refused to release his film, A Rainy Day in New York, which several of the cast members have said that they are separating themselves from it. Was it Timothy Chalamet who gave his salary to rape crisis organizations? I want to say it was. I think it was. That sounds right. Even though it's been complete, he says Amazon will not return his calls pretty much or give him a reason for why they won't release (laughs) the project. And they've also decided not to go forward on the other three movies that Woody Allen wanted to produce. I'm assuming all of them about a young, impressionable, underage girl falling in love with a man who is 17,000 years her senior. He says, quote, Amazon has tried to excuse its action by referencing a 25-year-old baseless allegation, but that allegation was already well known to Amazon and the public before Amazon entered into four separate deals with him. And in any event, it does not provide a basis for Amazon to terminate the contract. Let's look at that statement (laughs) because holy shit, they said it. I'll give him, much like Bradley Cooper, one kudo, which is that, yeah, Amazon did know about all of that before they entered a four-picture deal with him. They still suck because much like Everybody else who's worked with a predator over the last couple of years or decades, y'all knew this going in. So you can't be surprised when shit finally hits the fan. But then I also enjoy them saying with a little M dash, it's also not true. Honestly, I told this to somebody yesterday when this came out. I would love Amazon to just be like, okay, come at us. Take it to court deposition, bitch, because we would love to talk to you about some of these allegations that you feel are baseless. Any trial like this, you get to depose the other party and they have to answer anything, no matter how tangentially relevant it is to the case. And I would just love to watch him squirm under oath, having to answer all these questions again 
and have to reiterate a story that he probably doesn't even remember, or he probably does, because he's a sick son of a bitch. $68 million is probably a drop in the bucket for Amazon. But I would just love them to maybe try to at least give the air of doing the right thing and just be like, yeah, you know what? Do it. I dare you, Woody. Do it. So that's where I was at with this. I was both excited. I They'll probably settle. But I don't know. I was just like, they should just tell him, you know what? Yeah, because then you get to be deposed. How does everybody else feel about this? Am I just a little too excited? I was actually in, in a similar space with you, Kristen. As soon as I read it, I, I, I did have this moment of just like, well, I mean, he does have a point. They did know about this before they ever signed a deal with him. And then they pulled out of the deal really because they were afraid of how it was going to make them look because everybody was talking about it again. But they did kind of know. So he does he does have a point and a case there. Obviously, these are not baseless accusations or anything like that. But yeah, I think it would, I think it would be hilarious. I personally, I think that both of these like I'm not on anybody's side here. I'm just like, you know what, you guys, you guys duke it out and we'll we'll watch and be entertained. I hadn't even thought of it that way, Kristen, in terms of what you were saying. Let's, yeah, let's go. Let's, I'm right there with you. It's like, yeah, let's put Woody Allen on the stand. Let's hear about this stuff. Cause I would be fascinated to see that deposition and, you know, witness insert legal legalese term here. This isn't the first time we've heard this argument. Cause I know the fanboys brought it up a lot. Heck, I think even I mentioned it in terms of the James Gunn stuff, these studios knew you know, there's no way they don't know this vetting stuff when it happens. They vet these filmmakers. Maybe this means they need to start taking this cultural change seriously and start looking at these filmmakers for, you know, these accusations will come out, they will happen. And maybe they should stop ignoring the fact that some of these people have issues, accusations. Go for it, Woody. Let's let's see how this suit goes. <laughs> this just reminds businesses and studios and all of that. If you don't want a $68 million lawsuit, maybe don't hire a person that you know is a known criminal. I'm waiting with bated breath. The ball's in your court, Amazon. Do the right thing. Moving on to Max Landis. Uh, must we i thought he was gone i thought a house had fallen on him or something but nope nope that only happens in the wizard of oz so max landis is back he went on a bit of a break because he got accused of generally being a big raging asshole and attacker assaulter of women and he's just a scumbag literally comes from a family of scumbags I'm sorry, okay, if you don't know my antipathy towards John Landis, look it up. I've well disclosed the fact that I despise this family equally. He's back with a movie! Yay! And it turns out that it's for all of us, ladies. It's for all of us because it's about the Me Too movement. Because uh, nothing says expert like Max Landis. He's making this movie called Shadow in the Cloud with Chloe Grace Moretz that is being written by him with Roseanne Liang directing. Supposedly, this is coming just two days before Idris Elba is in negotiations for a sci-fi film that's also written by Max Landis. Shadow in the Cloud, according to Deadline Synopsis, is, quote, Chloe Grace Moretz plays a captain carrying top-secret documents aboard a B-17 Flying Fortress who must contend with an evil presence 
an oncoming Japanese ambush, and the leery all-male crew. So it's sexist and racist. Because it's like white woman in trouble in the Japanese are coming and oh hey she might get raped. <sighs> Why? Why do we think <laughs> Why do we want to see this movie? This all makes me want to shower. Exactly. It's really gross. The Daily Beast laid out in case you were curious, like all of this is buried in a really long lengthy article about all the problems that Max Landis espouses. So I recommend you read the whole piece because it lays out all the accusations about him, all the stuff that he's actually posted on Twitter that came from his own goddamn fingertips. It's not a both sides now story, like he actually tweeted dumb shit. I have this real problem and we're, we'll talk about it too. And it might just be worth it to throw out the other article, but Me Too movies being co-opted by known accusers. This comes out right around the same time as Casey Affleck's new movie, which is supposedly his response and honoring, quote-unquote, of women. He wrote this movie called Light of My Life, written, directed, and starring Casey Affleck. I'm going to debut with the Berlin International Film Festival, and it's, quote, an apocalyptic relationship drama set in a society without women where gender roles have to be renegotiated. And he claims that he wrote this movie before all of the conversation about him being a sexual harasser happened. So it's just going to be problematic as shit because he wrote it when he learned nothing and didn't care. I have a real problem with both of these guys just in general, but them taking this, the Me Too movement and then trying to make movies where they're saying, oh, see, I've learned, watch my film to show you how much I've learned. That doesn't solve a problem. That doesn't confront a problem. And again, it takes away movies that could have been really made by women about topics that they know about. I hate the fact that I have to turn down a female filmmaker in a fucking Max Landis written movie, but we all know this movie's gonna be garbage because the people writing it don't know shit about anything. <laughs> Feel free to jump in, ladies, because I'm just, I'm tired. I'm, I'm Cynthia Erivo tired. Anything espousing feminism from Max Landis, what comes immediately to mind for me is Michael Bay trying to do feminism. I won't judge. I mean, we'll, you know, we'll see. That whole article was absolutely gross. And I had largely forgotten about Max Landis, that he was even a thing. And that brought all that gross cringe inducing this right back to the forefront. But once again, it proves that mediocre white men in that town can do there's no problem in that town with failing upward and it gets even easier if your daddy's a filmmaker i mean we i just got done harping on another male filmmaker whose daddy's in the industry who just got another role another film that he really shouldn't even i don't even think he should have it makes me angry as well jumping to casey affleck i'm honestly surprised what bothered me there was elizabeth moss in it that made me really sad to hear that she had joined that cast and what she was saying about him, because I honestly, I wouldn't have expected to hear that coming from her. And it disappointed me a little bit. I don't know if that's bad to say, but I, I will honestly say it. Lives and careers are being ruined, people. So many lives, so many careers. I'm so tired. 
I'm so tired. Like all of this stuff came out almost like in succession. It was like Max Landis and then the Sean Penn bullshit and then the Casey Affleck stuff. And I was like, are you people unaware of the concept of irony? This is a little too on the nose. Like this is too much for me. The idea of known people that have been known to be sexual harassers like this. I know that we have to use things like allegedly and stuff like that because it hasn't gone to trial or it hasn't been adjudicated or anything. But you're like, no, no, they are. They are. And we know that they are. And they're making these films and they're being allowed to make these films because they're so fucking insulated from everything. And it does feel like, you know, someone like Casey Affleck is like, oh, I'm going to do a sort of bullshit mea culpa about oh how wonderful women are and and you get male critics then turning around and fucking praising them for it and meanwhile all the rest of us are sitting there going like have you learned nothing nothing over the past year you know i i almost don't expect casey affleck or max landis to have learned anything but i do expect some of the guys who are talking about this to have learned something by now to be like this is blatantly what we have been talking about this is blatantly the issues that we've been discussing for over a fucking year and even longer before that and you still don't get it we don't have the time or the energy to explain it to you anymore this is a problem and the fact that you don't see it as a problem is part of the problem i can already hear a certain brand of male critics tripping over themselves to pat casey affleck on the back that's going to be sickening whenever that happens do any of you guys watch bojack horseman no no. I do not. There's an episode in the last season where Bojack, really by accident, gets branded a male feminist, gets called a male feminist. And the entire episode is about him saying things that women have already said, that like women in on the show and in his life have already said. But because he's saying them, everybody pays attention to him. And the thing that he objects to, the thing that initially gets him called a male feminist and gets him on all these talk shows is he's talking about an actor who choked his wife, right? And he says, you shouldn't choke people. Everybody is like, oh, he's this marvelous male feminist. And I feel like that that's what some of these male critics are, that some of these male critics actually do see these films. It's just like, hey, now that a man has said it, we should praise him and applaud him. Meanwhile, all of the women are sitting there going like, all right, seriously, We're we're still having this conversation. Like, how is this even possible? And and that, and that's the thing. Guys, we're tired. We're really tired. We're really tired of talking about this. We said this ages ago on this show. We, we would love to just talk about all of the nice movies that we enjoy seeing and, even, and some of the movies that we don't enjoy seeing and, like, just have that be the conversation. But somehow we keep on having to talk about these fucking men. You have to do the work now. We're tired of it. I am totally in agreement with you, Lauren. It's, can't we just get a day... Just a day. Moving on to another listener question. We got two this week. This one's from Daniel B. at Film and Sports 21. Daniel asks, what female directors are you most looking forward to following their careers from here on? Let's talk about something joyous. Female directors. Which female directors are we really spotlighting that we really are excited to see what they have coming next? Lauren, what are some female directors that you're interested to see how they progress from here. I was trying to think of a few, and uh, Karen Kusama, who I find really interesting, everything that she's made, whether you like it or not, has been very interesting. The other person is Jennifer Kent, who coming out with The Nightingale this year, and and I don't know when that actually has a wide release date, but uh, she also did The Babadook. And I like, 
I really like female-driven horror, and I think that women, female directors and writers particularly right now, have a, um, have a lot to say about horror within the horror genre, and so I'm, I'll be interested to see what direction those women go and, and the kind of things that they choose to address. Even though, I mean, uh, my understanding about The Nightingale is that it is a very tough movie, but I will still be interested to see it simply because of her. For me, I am really excited to see what Reed Morano does from here on. She's the one doing the new Blake Lively film, The Rhythm Section. She also did Meadowland a couple years ago. That was really great. We don't have the trailer listed on our trailer talk, but I also am really interested to see what Rie Russo Young does. She's got a movie coming out this year called The Sun is Also a Star, and she did the YA film Before I Fall, which is actually really entertaining. Entertaining and melancholy. And Marielle Heller. We've talked uh, quite a bit about our appreciation for Can You Ever Forgive Me? And she's already got her next film, which is a big biopic about Mr. Rogers. So I'm hoping she's one of the few that we can actually like break out and get some big budgets and actually get big projects made and funded. And of course, my girl, Greta Gerwig, of Greta Gerwig. I will follow Greta Gerwig wherever she goes because she is amazing. Kim, what about you? You guys have actually touched on at least two of mine already. I was going to throw out Kusama because, you know, we have so few. She's doing such interesting work and in genres where you don't see a lot of women directing or where you don't see a lot of women crossing through and making that huge jump. And I've just found everything she's done that I've watched fascinating. Another one was Heller, I was going to say. And then I will throw out Anna Bowden, who has Captain Marvel coming out. Granted, she's doing it, directing it kind of as a team. To see another woman crossing over to get behind the camera in the superhero movies, I have to get behind that. And I'm really interested to see how she follows that up. I also just wanted to mention Dee Reese, who I don't think has a film in the pipeline right now. She does. She has. She does? I don't know if it's actually done, but I know it's supposed to come out this year. She's making a thriller with Anne Hathaway and Ben Affleck for Netflix. Ooh, awesome. I think it's also based on a Joan Didion book. Oh. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I know because I wrote about it for an article on women directing (laughs) movies that are coming out this year. Mudbound was just such an excellent film and kind of got slept on. I feel I feel like Mudbound would would be more recognized like this like this past year or this year than it was initially because it's kind of one of the earliest or prestige films that Netflix did and Netflix getting so much more recognition for for feature films now. I really like her. I loved Mudbound and I'm looking forward to seeing what else she has to say. Well, one director that I wish did more is Mary Lambert. Mary Lambert went on a really interesting Twitter rant the other day you should go look for it about how she made one of the highest grossing horror films i think at the time and didn't get to make another project for several years after that and if you're curious what that film is it's pet cemetery and the reason i'm bringing all this up is because they're remaking pet cemetery directed by two dudes because ain't that the way and we just got a full trailer out for it this week we all have thoughts of varying quality. Pet Cemetery is an adaptation of the Stephen King novel of the same name about a family that moves to a little farmhouse next to a pet cemetery. Some really bad shit goes down and it ends up culminating in the resurrection of children. It's, it was made in the 1980s. 
by Mary Lambert. It's one of my favorite horror movies of all time. It's also one of the scariest movies I claim of all time. I know that that is not something that is lobbed at that movie equally. So I know it's just me. But they're remaking it. comes out April 5th. And the first trailer was fine. But the second trailer committed some egregious sins in that it revealed a major, major plot change. If you don't want to know what happens in the book and the first movie, just fast forward like two minutes. In the original novel and in the movie, they kill off the three-year-old son, Gage. He gets hit by a car. Honestly, he shouldn't have had a body to come back to because he gets killed by a fucking semi and he should be pink mist. But, you know, narrative. So they bring him back and the trailer for this movie shows that that's not happening and they're actually going to kill off the oldest daughter ellie i have a problem with this on two levels a why you would spoil that in the trailer two months before it comes out is beyond me unless you had absolutely no footage that you couldn't show that would have shown something i mean the poster that they just released pretty much gives it away Second, as a person who adores the first film, I do feel like the change is a bit of a slap in the face because how I interpret the movie and the film is that these characters are all fearful of death and the movie reminds you that death is a cynical asshole that will take anybody at any time no matter if you feel that a small three-year-old child has his entire life to live. Just the fickleness. And and maybe it's because, too, in the 80s and even in the 90s, we don't kill children that horribly. I'm always, like, naturally just, like, inclined to movies where I'm like, wait, we're actually killing kids because that doesn't happen. Like, that's supposed to be, like, the worst of the worst in film. So, I, I mean, to kill off the older child, it already doesn't make me happy that... This is a movie that's A, being remade by two dudes. So I'm already not happy about that. And I just feel like this is just a further change. And when people, understandably, were like noticing it the other day on social media, the producers came out and said, oh, well, the first movie wasn't really that great about it. It was a doll. Like, way to piss on the first film directed by a woman, dude. Because now I'm not going to be looking at your movie wondering what the hell is CGI Oh, yeah, it's a doll. It's so terrible and schlocky. But wait, look at all the CGI we're going to put on Zelda, which we're probably just going to fuck up. I have no hope for this project. I know. I'm sorry. I'm trying to be positive, but I don't. I don't. And it's closing night film at South by Southwest. I'm probably going to miss it because I'm leaving. And that actually might be a good thing. I know I'm going to be permanent frowny face. But I'm in the minority, actually, on the show. Karen disagrees with me. She's not here. But Lauren, I also know you disagreed with me so what are your thoughts on the this trailer and this spoiler i'll preface this by saying that i don't have the same attachment to the original pet cemetery that you two and i totally understand why if i had that attachment because there are films that i do have that attachment for that this might sit uneasily the director's reasoning i think is very interesting and because in a certain sense they're right one of the difficult things to watch in um the original pet cemetery film is the fact that this is a three-year-old child and of course if i remember the book correctly there's a lot of stuff that gage says and does in the book when he when he comes back 
that you simply cannot ask a toddler to do, like period. So you have to find another way to do it. I mean, Lambert, I believe, cut out a whole bunch of stuff that just like he doesn't he doesn't say or do certain things um, that happen in the book because it's not appropriate. Like there's just no way that that can happen. I don't agree with them about like, oh, it's obviously a doll. I mean, I think it's it's very 1980s and everything. But, it, you know, I, I think that it, it's scary as far as it goes. It does have an edge of child's play to it which is unsurprising. One of the things I find interesting about this change, it is going to take the film in a completely different direction because it's going to, it's not going to be about that sort of innocence lost or about that same kind of, one of the things that the book does and that the original film does is, is you get that sense of just agony of losing this totally innocent little boy. Like he hasn't had time to not be innocent, to, to do anything that as like an, a jerk like to behave badly in any real way. He's so small. When you have an eight-year-old girl, there's a there's a, a heightened complication to that. And the way that the parents react to it, I think will probably be different. And the horror will be different. I don't know whether that's going to be good or bad. I also have some discomfort with once again, turning a small girl into sort of the conduit for evil. That's been done. That was done in The Exorcist. That's been done in various forms. You know, it was done in, to a certain degree in The Bad Seed. But I think that it could translate into some interesting stuff, depending upon how they handle it and depending upon what they actually do with this change. I agree with you, absolutely. I think they should have kept this change completely secret. Then at least they would have had the impact of when the film came out, everybody going like, oh my God, they've, cha- they've changed it. Watching it, you wouldn't necessarily know it was. I already got there. your money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kim, what about you? I am inclined to side with you on this, Kristen. Partially, your analysis there just swayed me. I was, but I was watching it this morning. That was a bad, just bad, bad, bad trailer. I, it makes me wonder about the quality of the movie they're going to throw out because it looks like they. Th- threw in everything they had. I saw moments in there from like the climactic, you know, what looks like it's going to be the final 20 minutes. I'm already not that excited for it. I thought the 80s one was fine. I mean, I've seen it. I thought it was scary. This one, I've made my thoughts on Jason Clark really clear on this podcast, and I'm not going to go into that again. It makes me wonder as well, because in the last trailer, they use the shot of Gage by the highway, just I wonder why they set up this trailer the way they did. It didn't win me over. And to hear, because I had completely missed what you said, that the tr- the producer's reactions to the questioning about this was to just basically run the original, the other version through the mud. That really makes me wonder about what kind of movie this is going to be. Uh, I'll probably go see it, but I'm not, I'm already not that thrilled about it. Well, it comes out April 5th. I don't know why we keep trying to make Jason Clark happen. He is the embodiment of Fetch in an actor. He keeps getting <laughs> roles, which I don't understand. Come on, I think he's a good actor. Stop trying to make Jason Clark a thing. <laughs> I think he's a good actor. I find him so boring. He's very boring. He's very, very boring. He is so uh, unless boring. It's serenity, and then nothing is boring in that movie, including <laughs> Jason Clark. True. He was great in Serenity. He was you have to great in that, that movie. That's because that movie is just bad shit, though. So. Only time I liked him was Chappaquiddick. That was the well, only time. Well, then go see Serenity because he still sounds like Chappaquiddick <laughs> in that movie. <laughs> he's, he's, 
Probably the only accent he can do. He's acting like if Chappaquiddick just came from a 1970s nightclub. He oh, no. is. It is great. <laughs> Further proof. Kim is the only one who will not go see Serenity, by the way. That needs to change. Because you told me three weeks ago that I wouldn't like it. So. I don't think you'd like it, but you just need to expect experience it it needs to be in your eyeballs i will when it's on hbo or cinemax or something no one, no one <laughs> likes it turning into the bad guys from bird box i swear just like trying to be like open your eyes and go see it one of us one of us unrepentant joys other trailers came out but none of them i think had the same level of like commitment from us as as that one did but we're gonna segue into reviews kim you saw isn't it romantic but karen and i are actually gonna go see it on tuesday can you tell me what i'm in for just how happy should i be i was really torn coming out of it but there was and i've said that i said this on our slack chat This put me in a very strange place of like mental dichotomy between, you know, critic me and me, me. It was really fun. It's really a fun little movie. I mean, I think we all know the plot when it came out because I know I was really, really, really skeptic when it came out. We can classify it along the lines of that. I feel pretty. Oh, let's let's take a fat girl, hit her on the head and we'll see what happens. Maybe she'll be lovable then. They crafted a very enjoyable parody on rom-coms, I guess. Rebel Wilson basically gets mugged in the subway and then wakes up to find herself in, I guess, romantic comedy land. You know, everything's pastel colored and all the men are fantastically hot. For a film directed by a man, I was really impressed by the amount of female gaziness going on there. How happy should I be with baby Hemsworth? He does good. I think I called him when I said it initially. He's diet Hemsworth for me. It's, you know, great taste. (laughs) Yeah, it's, he gets, he takes his shirt off. He's Australian. He's got that Hemsworth face. Is he the best Hemsworth? No. (laughs) I saw a clip where he is playing the saxophone. Tell me that happens in the movie. Yes, that very <gasps> stay to the end, but that does happen. Yay! Okay, so so what we're saying is is that I am an inch away. Chris Hemsworth dancing in Ghostbusters. Liam Hemsworth playing sax in this movie. Put the two scenes together, and I get my own Hemsworth band. Exactly, oh my God. you do. Oh, that, that, that could be a thing. <laughs> Oh my god, I will make it a thing. Say what you will about him being the Diet Coke of Hemsworth. I just love how both Hemsworths seem to be embracing their inner dumb girl persona. I support it. I support all of it. And actually, that really does work with this movie as well, using those words, that he gets some delightful attempts at clueless comedy. And it. I think he's he gets some of the bigger laughs in the film. I support both Hemsworths equally. I find them to be both entertaining in their own ways. And now I just really want to watch The Dressmaker. God damn it. Karen and I will have a full review on Tuesday to add to this. Lauren, you wanted to talk about what's coming new to Netflix. So what did you watch and why should we all watch it? Last night I watched High Flying Bird, which is the new Steven Soderbergh film that was filmed uh, entirely on an iPhone. 
give Soderbergh credit. He keeps on doing some very interesting things with streaming and with iPhones. I think that he shot Unsane on an iPhone also. It's out on Netflix now. It stars Andre Holland as Ray Burke, a sports agent who pitches a his rookie basketball client an intriguing and controversial business opportunity during a NBA lockout. Basically, no one's getting paid. The agents aren't getting paid. The um, players aren't getting paid over the course of the film. And actually, the controversial idea comes quite late in the film's runtime. It's only an hour and a half long. What the film is really doing is trying to interrogate the way that players are treated and particularly the way that an industry like the like the NBA, which is almost entirely white owners and the vast majority is black players, and how those relationships are constructed and what that means. This is an almost exclusively black cast. There's a few white folks in there, including Kyle McLaughlin, who's just deliciously nasty. Isn't he always? He, he's he's wonderful in this. Like, <laughs> I was going to say, that's the second time you've referred to Kyle McLaughlin and the term delicious <laughs> in two episodes. I still don't like it. Still don't like it. <laughs> I mean, he's not exactly sexy in this movie, but like he walks on screen, and you're just like, oh, you're the bad guy. I mean, we don't like you. But it's great. It's really interestingly shot. I, I don't think that you really notice the use of the iPhone, but it, it does give a, a different perspective. Like there's a lot more widescreen and depth of field. At times, it's almost a fisheye effect. I found it really interesting, the, the way that he was constructing the shots and, and the impact that they actually have on the story. The script is fantastic. There's very little sports in this sports movie. Most of it is talking about the business of sports and the way that players are treated and the way that players behave with each other and with their management and the way that they're exploited. It's really a fascinating film. I was more intrigued by it than I thought I would be because I'm not usually attracted to sports movies. This was just so well constructed. It plays almost like an Ocean's Eleven movie where you feel like that there's a heist being pulled off. And it's all involved with Andre Holland basically trying to game the system in order to benefit himself and to benefit his players. It's, it's just an incredibly well done film. And um, I really recommend it. Like Netflix is, is actually coming out with some very interesting and different kinds of films right now. And they're well worth checking out, even though they don't advertise them terribly well. Well, I watched something that was also on a streaming platform this week that I wanted to talk about. I watched Horror Noir, the Shudder documentary about the history of African-American actors and performers in horror films. It's based on a book of the same title, which you can purchase. This is a documentary that is less than 90 minutes, and I honestly wanted it to be two and a half hours because I just loved all the information that they were giving us. It's a, both a chronological look at the history of Black actors and films directed by Black directors in the horror genres, starting with Birth of a Nation and that idea of Black people, usually played by white actors and white and Blackface, lusting after white women, how that segues into stuff like King Kong, Creature from the Black Lagoon. But then you also get this history of the transition from white actors and Blackface to actual Black actors in these movies, starting in horror where they were usually the bug-eyed people who were fearful of ghosts and were comical. And then they transitioned into eventually leading movies and stuff like Blackula, and then eventually were directed. But then there's also this undercurrent of studio interference that the movie is very frank about. When the movie Ganja and Hess came out, which you can stream on Shudder, 
and I'm so excited because I want to watch it. They were talking about how that movie was chopped up because it was a little too stylish. It was a little too good looking of a movie, especially directed by a black director. How studios have said, you know, we don't want to see relationships developed in these movies. Just the casting of an actress like Jada Pinkett in a movie where she could be the final girl is considered controversial. And so you get this deeper undercurrent of it isn't just there aren't enough movies with black directors in the horror genre or black actors, but it, they're really being stymied by the studio system that expects these movies to be of a certain type, i.e. in the 70s being black exploitation, or nowadays you have the outdated belief that, oh, if you're a black person in a horror movie, you're going to die, which this movie actually does a really great job of saying that's not completely true, but it isn't not true. And I really enjoyed all the talking heads they got. And really, there's a great opening credits scene where they get all these actors and talking heads to watch the movies that they're going to be talking about and commenting. It's really great to watch, you know, Keith David and Ken Foray and Rusty Kundiev and Tony Todd watching these movies and making comments about them. I would watch a movie where it's just they MST3K horror movies. I would just watch that because I would think it would be really great. And, and I really enjoyed this. It's, again, a very breezy, less than 90 minutes movie that could have easily been longer. And I would take a class on this because I think it's so fascinating. It's available on Shudder along with several of the titles that they reference. So you can actually watch the documentary and then watch some of the films that they're referencing. Definitely check it out. Shudder is putting out some great content. They just announced that they're going to do another documentary about cursed films, which I've just like, so you guys saw my PowerPoint that I made in the 10th grade where I talked about the <laughs> Twilight Zone and Poltergeist Curse. I will take my royalty now, good sir. Definitely go check it out, Horror Noir. It's amazing. Lauren, I know you watched some of the movies that were um, on Shudder under it, but have you watched the doc yet? I haven't seen the doc yet. It was between that and watching High Flying Bird, and I think I wound up going like, oh, I'm going to watch High Flying Bird. But I actually, I did watch Tales from the Hood, which I had not seen. <gasps> Such a great movie. It's so good. And it's so, one of the horrifying things about it is that it's so topical still. And this was, it was made in what, the 90s? 95. And, and, and you're still just like, okay, so we're now 10, 15, 15-ish years later, and you're like, it's still it's still the same it's all still the same. i watched tales from the hood on hbo when i was eight i had no concept of what it of what it was talking about i just knew that it scared the crap out of me it's quite scary actually you know it, it has that edge of humor to it also and it's very it's a very 90s film but yeah it actually has a lot of horror like good horror it's got a killer doll that is fucking terrifying in that. it, which is what the part I remembered the most as a kid. And for the longest time, it was not available on DVD or Blu-ray. I know Rusty Kundiev, who's the director, and I briefly talked about how for the longest time they couldn't find a print of the movie at the studio. The studio had lost the print, but I think they've since found it because it is now available on Blu-ray. If you haven't haven't seen it, you should go watch it because it's amazing and then i think the sequel is out on netflix and i've seen the sequel and it's not not as good as the original but i'm so glad you watched it because it's so relevant and it's so good hidden gem of the 90s i would say 
It's a fantastic film. And the, the other one is Ganja and Hess, which I'm actually going to watch tonight. I know. I'm going to watch that as well. So I'm very excited to... We'll, we'll have to talk about that next episode. Just keep promoting Shudder and their awesome content. But that's going to close out this episode of Citizen Dane. You can listen to the podcast all sorts of places, including wherever podcasts can be found. We are on Spotify and we are on iTunes. If you're listening on iTunes or you want to help us out, consider leaving us a rating and review. Five stars would be delightful. You can also check us out on our Twitter, which is at Citizen Dame Pod. And we have a Facebook, which is facebook.com slash Citizen Dame. If you want to email us something long form, you can do that at citizendamepod at gmail.com. We have our website, which is citizendamepod.com, where we do our regular top fives. It is Valentine's Day, and it's also the 25th anniversary of Reality Bites. So I came up with the concept of the worst movie couple. So we're going to be doing that. We also did another top five last week, also based on the anniversary of Reality Bites, on problematic 90s movies, which you can find. You can find my full review of Horror Noir up there, the show notes with trailers and links to all of our reviews. You also have Lauren's GameStruck column, where she tells us all about the movies that you can stream on various streaming platforms that are classic. Kim has her Thirst Traps series, as well as her Feminist Fridays. We are going to be trying to bring back what I did for love after award season is over because Karen is up next and she is busy. And of course, if you want to contribute to our website, either an original piece that you want to share with us or something that you've already published on your own blog that you'd like to get some more attention to, we have a guest contributor program. You can always email us and we'll definitely post it. We have, I know we have Sydney Urbanic from Real Honey is going to be giving us her picks for her favorite classic film references and music videos. And it's a really fun article and that's going to be up this week. So if you want to contribute some stuff, get in touch with us. We'd love to share your content. We also have two ways for you to get some fun stuff. If you give us a little bit of money, we have our Zazzle store. It's zazzle.com slash citizen game. We have all sorts of fun stuff on there. We just put up two new pieces on Zazzle that are really great, uh, including a pin that says Grist for my feminist agenda. So if you want to get that along with your Chris Pine, Miss Your Pine notebook, you can visit Zazzle.com slash Citizen Dame. And I do believe there is a code on there to get some money off. The code is ZLOVE in the air. L-U-V, so you can get 15% off site-wide if you want to buy something off of our store and give us a little money. And of course, as always, we have our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Citizen Dame. You can support us for just a dollar, three dollars, gets you a pin and access to all sorts of stuff. We have a bunch of content already up there, including our boyfriend draft, our Suicide Squad commentary is Running into a little snag, we had some issues with syncing everything up, but Karen promises that it'll be up after the awards season is over, but it is coming. In the meantime, we have contests. Unfortunately, we can't promote the contest on our Patreon page. We got in trouble for that. So if you are a patron, you are going to be entered into a contest to win a digital copy of The Happy Prince, courtesy of Sony Pictures Classics, as well as... The score to first man. Oh yeah, you get space jazz in your house. 
Stitches! So anybody who is a, a patron or becomes a patron in the month of February is going to be eligible to win. If you also are a regular listener and you don't want to become a patron, you too can enter to win a copy of The Happy Prince on digital, again, courtesy of Sony. All you have to do is tweet us your favorite celebrity biopic. It can be anything. It can be the Lindsay Lohan, Liz and Dick movie. I don't care. Just send that to us. We have our individual Twitters to take us home. You can find me at journeys underscore film. Karen is at Karen M. Peterson. Lauren, where are you? I am at LH Business. And Kimberly Pierce. At KPierce624. We will be back next week, hopefully with less shitty men to talk about. One day, guys. Just, just one. Just one. Karen will be back. Maybe things will be happier. We miss Karen. Okay, I'm going to close this out. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> We've always loved horror. It's just that horror hasn't always loved us. Black people play a particular role in horror films. First, we weren't in it. We were played by white people. Yeah. We went from maids to pimps and hoes. If there was somebody black, they would be the first to die. Black films hold a mirror up to society, but at the same time give an audience an escape. Man. Is black. <laughs> 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 <laughs>